From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. So glad you could be tuned in on this Friday, December 9th, 2022, and really happy to welcome back to the studio today our friend from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Daryl Hurd. We're going to be talking today about non-traditional pets, of course, dogs and cats, the most popular pets in the United States there are other pets that you may choose, and we want to talk today about how you can best care for those pets and keep them healthy. We're going to be back after this news from NPR. Stay tuned. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dane Hill. Today is Friday, December 9th, 2022, and I'm so glad you're tuned in today. I hope you're enjoying your afternoon so far, but I'm really happy to welcome back today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, our friend Dr. Daryl Hurd, and we're going to be talking today about the care of let's say non-traditional pets, a kind of category that many people might call exotic pets. Uh, But we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So let me welcome you back to the program, Dr. Hurd. I'm glad to have you here. Yeah, as usual, Dana, it's uh, it's really great to be back. So the the term exotic animals is one that maybe isn't an ideal choice because, well, the word exotic is relative to begin with. Uh, so what is it about the term that maybe isn't suitable? Um, I think because a lot of the the species that have been traditionally uh, collected under the term exotic have now become actually mainstream. You know, and examples of that would be. You know some of the bird species and reptiles, um, and then also, of course, you know we we work um, as our particular service. We deal with anything that's considered non-traditional or exotic, but we work with rabbits and rodents, and those have been domesticated um, for many many years. Um, the other thing, also, if you look at look up the term exotic, it means foreign to these shores. Is one definition, and that could include dogs, cats, and horses. So uh, it's not a really good term, I think, for for our animal species, and I think. Uh, we have, as I said, a good number of species that have become mainstream uh, pets. Yeah, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, dogs and cats, hmm. obviously, the probably number one and two pets in hmm. America. I don't know whether it's cats or dogs first, hmm. but uh, I think that it's pretty safe to say those are those are the top two. Below dogs and cats, what do you think in popularity? Where do you think number three is? What animal is that? Um, it's harder to find. I know that there was a, there have been some surveys. Actually, I think the goldfish or the the fish are actually at the top of the list of of pets. But uh, oh, really? Yeah, some of the you know some of the bird species, and then also rabbits are up and coming. At least as a mammal um, pet, um, is a very common pet. Yeah, you know, when I was a, a lad, I recall that just about every kid I know had a fish of some sort, an aquarium. Aquariums mm. had. <laughs> Had a lot of popularity. Uh, I remember back uh, in, let's say, the late 70s, early 1980s. And it, it's not that they, they don't still. Uh, I just, maybe I just don't, don't, don't know the kind of people who have a, an aquarium anymore. But I think that fish were very popular when I was young. And I remember it was also very common for folks to have, say, um, a parakeet or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, those are those are very common pets and they uh, are still very common. Uh, I don't know whether their popularity is increasing or decreasing. We certainly see a lot of them. Yeah, now what you see is probably mostly pets that are not doing so great because you are seeing animals that are being brought, being brought into a veterinary clinic. But that isn't to say that one cannot successfully care for these animals, correct? Yeah, definitely. And as long as you do... Um you know, some uh, education, um, you know, educate yourself about the care of these animals and then uh, provide the appropriate environment for them and nutrition. Um, there's no reason why they shouldn't have a long, happy life. Yeah. Now, it may be that dogs and cats are, quote unquote, easier to care for simply because so many people are very familiar with them. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, uh, that there's nobody listening to this program who doesn't know somebody with a cat or a dog, whether or not our listeners have them themselves. So you're likely to understand what it takes to care for a cat or what it takes to care for a dog. But maybe not as many people listening right now would know what it takes to care for a rabbit. I know that I was surprised when I saw a list of things that one ought not to feed a rabbit, and it contained things that I, I would have thought... Oh, yeah, I'd give that to a rabbit, but, yeah. but maybe one. But, but, but this is what I mean. There's, it, it's not that one couldn't learn this and then successfully care for a bunny. It's just that, you know, a little education is going to make it work out a lot better for you. Yeah, just, you know, just like any other, you know, for a cat or a dog, if you want to get a cat or a dog for a pet, um, you want to firstly, re- you know, resist the uh, impulse to to buy the animal, you know, it will get the animal is maybe do a little bit of research um, beforehand, even with a dog or a cat, because there's a, a lot of things that go into, you know, keeping these animals, including, you know, health care, you know, routine vaccinations for the mammals. Rabbits, um, the only vaccine at the moment that we have a concern about is there is a disease called a viral disease called rabbit hemorrhagic um, disease, uh, which has affected both wild and domestic rabbits, and there is a vaccine that is available um, from selected veterinarians. Um, So if you want to protect your rabbit, you need to um, vaccinate against this particular disease. But, you know, a lot of the the so-called non-traditional exotic pets, we don't have, you know, vaccination programs, but still you need to know how to to feed them and then also what their husbandry or environmental conditions uh, are needed. You know, we have a lot of, I would say, it's getting better because people are educating them, but a lot of the disease problems um, or emergency problems that we see are related to ignorance or inappropriate uh, husbandry of these animals. So maybe then a good place to start in our conversation is to help folks kind of understand what some of these animals might need vis-a-vis care and feeding and, you know, and, and a correct uh, and appropriate environment. Um and this is something that I think anybody should do, whether or not we're talking about a non-traditional pet or something like a cat or a dog. I mean, you need to you need to choose a pet based on how well you could realistically care for that pet. So, you know, something like a goldfish probably doesn't require a tremendous um, uh, a tremendous expense or a tremendous um, amount of care or whatever. I mean, I've seen people just keep a a goldfish in a pretty simple bowl, but what would it take to keep a pet happy is something that's potential, you know, 
pet owners might want to really consider? I mean, it's going to it's going to obviously vary between the different groups of animals, and as um, as our service, which is called zoological medicine service, which just means everything that's non-human, but we cover everything. So we have you know birds, reptiles, um, and the small mammals, and then whatever other exotic pet that um, or odd pet that uh, you can find in Florida, um, but. Um, there are, you know, each of the each of the animals. The first thing that probably the question you have to to ask yourself is, you know, what sort of pet or will this pet fit in with my lifestyle and with my family's lifestyle? Um, you know, things that people don't take into consideration are the, uh, you know, what am I going to do when I want to go away for a vacation? So I like to travel. Um, and so, you know, you need to find someone that's trustworthy or some place that's trustworthy to look after your animals. And that becomes particularly concerning with some, you know, like particularly with birds. Um, birds, um, if you, you know, misfeeding them or inappropriate water supply or what have you, they can be, um, die very quickly or they can become very ill very, very quickly. You know, reptiles often benefit if they can go without food for a longer period of time and it's a little bit easier, but it's something to think about. And then the other thing to think about with some of these pets uh, is the lifespan, uh, a lot longer than the traditional cat or dog. So, you know, you get a tortoise, um, I mean, that's a family investment yeah. potentially for, yeah. for the long term. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because... Uh, I do know that some species of tortoise can live an exceptionally long life. I mean, as long as or longer than a human being. Uh, <laughs> and ditto, some species of birds can live quite a long time. Uh, you know, it, it 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 might not make sense for say a person in his or her sixties or so <laughs> to get a a bird that's going to live for seventy five years. Or the alternative is you need to either put it in the will or find someone who's a, a relation that would like to take on the responsibility of that uh, that bird once you pass away. Right. And, you know, for something uh, like a tortoise, I mean, it, it in order for you to keep an animal like that, well, you've got to have an environment in which that animal can thrive. I mean, having one in your apartment is probably not probably not the way to go. Yeah. And so, yeah, some of the particularly the large land tortoises, uh, it's almost... I call them little cows, you know. So you got to think about that. I mean, not only are the you know, the output that they produce, but you just got to find you got to keep them warm during the winter and so forth. And so you got to provide uh, environment for that. And this is also one of the areas where, you know, a good example of where you need to have a little bit of education before you select a pet is that what's available out there now. There are um, two large. Uh, terrestrial African tortoise species uh, available in the pet trade. Uh, one of them is called the African spur thigh tortoise, and the other is the leopard tortoise. And these animals have a very different size um, eventually. The leopard tortoise might get up to maybe, you know, maybe about a foot and a half in length and, you know, a foot in width versus the uh, spur thigh tortoise, which is the largest terrestrial tortoise in Africa, they can get up to 300 pounds or more. More importantly, they tunnel. Yeah, um, and yeah. so um, if you go to a reptile show or a pet shop, um, what you see, the, the, the spur thigh tortoises are very prolific in terms of producing eggs. They can have up to three clutches a year. Um, and the hatchlings, though, are about the same size and the same look as a leopard tortoise, except the leopard tortoise, you know, your price might be $100 
and the spur thighed will be $75. So what are you going to buy? You're going to buy the $75. But if you're in ignorance, you don't realize how big these animals can get. Um, and there's a lot of escaped uh, spur thigh tortoises because once they, they don't burrow until they get to a certain size and then they just borrow out of their enclosure. Oh, and so, wow. And that's the thing is you're talking about a 300-pound animal. Uh, mm-hmm. y- you, as the pet owner, are not going to be able to, like, pick this thing up. So, <laughs> so then you've got an animal that just outweighs you uh, and can – can escape what whatever uh, yard or what have you that you might have, and uh, there you go. You now you now you've got this flight risk. I um, mean, even if it moves slowly, it's yeah. still going to be something you got to deal with. Yeah, and then it's basically it's a large earth mover. It's going to if nothing else, it might destroy your beautiful garden in the backyard. <laughs> right. So, uh, and then if you're thinking about uh, something like. You know, and something like a a bird. I mean, one of obviously one of the things you want to make sure is that your bird doesn't just fly away. Uh, and so then, what do you do? You've got to you've got to you've got to treat the animal humanely. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you don't want to f- want it to fly up into a ceiling fan, and you don't want to just escape through your window or your sliding door. Yeah, and it's something I thought about over the years. I mean, my my favorites probably are birds, but. You know, I, I, flight is such a you know an important part of the a normal bird's behavior or a environment. I mean, the the ability to fly, but it's a balance between yeah. If you if you deflight you you know don't deflight them, then there is a potential, very real potential for them to escape or to wind up in um, in the the ceiling fan. I call that the Florida bird disease. Um, it's not an uncommon scenario. Is um, birds having free flight in the house and then the overhead fans being there. So uh, maybe before we take our first break, can we talk a little bit about some animals that you think maybe just people should not have, uh, even if people sometimes do have them? Are there, are there, first of all, are there some species that you're just not allowed to have as a pet? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, at the moment, there's a moratorium on certain reptile species because of, I know um, Dr. Ozaboff ta- has talked about this previously, about pythons being released into the environment. And so there's a, a list of uh, prescribed species by the Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission. Similarly, there are a number of lizard species, including tegus, um, that uh, you cannot um, now own unless you've got them grandfathered in and they're you know, microchipped, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have questions, you should always check um, the Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission uh, website, um, and they have information on what animals that you can and cannot keep in Florida. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, someone <laughs> someone might think to himself, oh, you know what I need? I need a tiger. Uh, but but <laughs> this is not a... This is not a responsible choice. Um, can we talk about some animals that are just not – it would not be responsible uh, for the average person to try to possess? Well, I mean, even just getting the simple you know, scenario of, of owning a bird, I would not – I mean, they're really spectacular, but I would not recommend any of the large macaw species. Um, it's very problematic keeping them. Um, they do develop – you know, if they're enclosed in small cages, they do develop behavioral issues commonly. Um, in in captivity, um, and they also are very long lived. Um, even some of the the bigger parrot species are a handful. If I, you wanted to get a bird, I would start out with a smaller species or one that has been domesticated, if you want to call that, for a long period of time. That is the budgerigar or or parakeet, um, and then the uh, 
you know, some of the, you know, the cockatiels uh, are also a good starter bird. And then if you feel that you want to move on to a larger bird, then investigate further and maybe move on to those animals. But I really don't think uh, the large macaws should be kept um, as pets. I know that some people do want to have um, some pets that might be what, and then I talked a little bit this, about this with your colleague last week. Some people might be attracted to some pets like snakes that may potentially be dangerous. Uh, and whether or not you know one is allowed to do this, I know that some people do keep venomous snakes. Um, responsible, not responsible? I mean, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's, it's, it's not responsible. I mean, it's just that you know, unless you've got your experience and you're trained and you understand the animals, then you shouldn't be reaching out. To, um, to have them as pets. The fortunate thing is there are uh, increasing rules and regulations related to the ownership of these uh, difficult or dangerous pets. Um, and once again, the FWCC, or Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission, is a place that you would have to reach out to. I know now for venomous reptiles in Florida, you need a special license. Um, and you need to be able to get that license. You need to do an apprenticeship if you really want to do it. Um, which is a good number of hours, and and then there's also strict regulations in terms of your collection, and then people, um, there are inspectors that will come out to your property and look at these animals to check and see, um, and there are significant fines um, for inappropriate uh, care or even owning an venomous reptile without having the uh, the appropriate permitting. Is one allowed to simply take an animal from the wild and keep it as a pet? Um, there are, for the most part, I would say no. Um, there is uh, some uh, exceptions, and that's, once again, you'd have to um, reach out to the uh, Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission. For example, I believe you can now keep, you know, two box turtles, um, or, you know, there are certain other species. Squirrels don't seem to be regulated. But that said, I mean, these animals are wild animals. Um, they are not pets, um, and we frequently see issues and disease issues and husbandry issues related to people holding on or keeping um, native wildlife, which we shouldn't be um, doing so. Right. All right. So this sets us up pretty well to begin to talk when we return from our break about how to really appropriately care for some of these different species that many people may find to be wonderful pets. And we're going to take a short break right now on Animal Airwaves Live. Let me remind you that my guest today is Dr. Daryl Hurd from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. We'll be back right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm so happy to have you tuned in today here on December 9th, and I'm happy to have as my guest today Dr. Daryl Hurd from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. Now, Dr. Hurd, we know that some of these animals that we're going to be talking about today actually, you know, we can call them non-traditional pets or what have you, but they have been kept or domesticated or cared for by people in many instances for a long, long time. And I'm thinking about something like, I don't know, a rabbit, right? Now, some people some people can have kept rabbits as pets, but I imagine that people have been caring for rabbits for a long time. 
Yeah, a very long time. I mean, maybe centuries, actually. I mean, obviously, they were originally kept for food um, and probably even fur for that matter. For that matter. But, uh, yeah, now they've, they've come into the – I think I think they are mainstream pets, uh, and there are a lot of people out there that I know that own pe- uh, rabbits. And to me, they are good pets as long as you follow certain guidelines in terms of the husbandry and nutrition. No, that is to say, uh, when I think about – when I think about something that makes a good pet, one of the things I I consider is whether or not, you know, that animal could be a happy pet. Now, it's hard to maybe anthropomorphize animals and, and know what they're feeling, but I think it's safe to say that one could probably care for a rabbit in a way that makes, that, you know, treats the rabbit humanely and, and gives it everything that it needs to to live a healthy life. And I know that different rabbit species are, or I don't know, rabbits have breeds. I guess I've, I went to the state fair once, and I saw so many different kinds of rabbits, uh, that, and many of which I'd never seen before. Um, and, you know, they're all rabbits of one type or another, and I don't know if you call them species or breeds. But uh, they, I mean, different sizes, you know, different kinds of fur. Um, but do they all have similar needs health-wise? Yeah, I mean the main the main uh, need, and I, I would call them different breeds. Um, they're all uh, uh, the domesticated rabbit is actually the domesticated European uh, wild rabbit. Um, so they, for the most part, the biggest thing I've emphasized before when we've talked about rabbits is the diet, uh, and they are uh, hindgut fermenters uh, and they are herbivores. And it really is simple: is that you can just feed them hay. Um, and that's good. It's, it's essential for them to have normal teeth wear uh, with the hay. And then also it's important for the normal gastrointestinal health uh, of these animals. That said, um, we avoid um, alfalfa hay because it's high in calcium and there's some other issues associated with that. And because I, I mentioned they have, they're a hindgut fermenter, um, just like any other fermentation vat, you don't want to sh- throw in you know, simple sugars and starches that are going to cause abnormal fermentation. And what happens in the rabbit? You get dysbiosis or abnormalities of um, the bacterial flora, uh, which result, can result in disease and death uh, very quickly of your, of your rabbit. So that's the, the beginning thing is just making sure that they are uh, fed hay as the predominant part of their diet. Um, you can put in a, a, a quality uh, palleted diet, but it seems to be not essential. As long as they have hay and clean water, um, that seems to be the starting point uh, for good health. And then you mentioned, you know, making them happy. I mean, it is right. I, I People say not to anthropomorphize with animals, but I think it is a good starting point for you to sort of have guidelines. You know, if I was this rabbit and if I was stuck in this little cage, would I be a happy camper? Probably not. Um, but being able to roam. Um, and then there are other things that sometimes we can't really replicate uh, with a rabbit. You know, outdoor life, they like to burrow and everything. Um, they're also very social, so it's kind of nice to actually have two rabbits. Um, so, But then you have to have the appropriate, you know, sex, and then maybe also you want a contra- contraception that is spay or ca- and or castrated. Um, usually the best pairing is a castrated male with a neutered female. And in rabbits, that's another important uh, issue, is that um, if you don't neuter the female rabbit and uh, it's never bred, then there is a high prevalence of uh, uterine 
um, ca cancer or adenocarcinoma by five years of age. So this is one animal we really, it is important to neuter at a young age um, and just for their overall long-term health. Uh, is that a procedure that your veterinarian can do? Yeah, definitely. And that also goes on to one of the other issues is that if you are getting a uh, non-traditional, if you want to call it, pet, um, is you want to check with the veterinarians in your local area, the veterinarians that are willing and able to work with the species that you're um, going to have as a pet, um, just so that you can prepare ahead of time. So not all veterinarians are able to or, or care to work with birds or reptiles uh, or small mammals, such as rabbits and rodents, um, and they may not be available for emergency after-hours care. That's something to, to talk to them about. And in some instances, you know, if you want to do the, the go the whole shebang, if you want, uh, when you do purchase a pet, it's a good idea to take it to a veterinarian um, very soon after purchase um, to get it examined to make sure there's no um, health-related issues. With uh, something like a rabbit, let's say that you have one. Is there a general rule about how much space an animal like that might need to, to be happy? Well, there's a, there's a crude way. I mean, there's obviously lab animal recommendations, which is the absolute minimum. Right. Um, and although they're working on that. Uh, and then there's the next stage, you know, I've heard, you know, they need to have be, be kept in a, you know, a, a cage that allows them three hops in one distance and their ears not to stuck you know, hit the roof or what have you. So those are very, very minimal. And also the ability of the animal to lay and stretch out. So um, those are just minimal. Um, so some people can use, you know, the hutch, if that's what you want to call it, um, as a way just to keep the animal while, and then when you're available, you can do supervised outings with, uh, with rabbits, which is one of the other problems with rabbits is they like to chew on things. So, okay, you're going to have the rabbit run around in your apartment. The problem with that, we certainly, we've had electrocuted uh, rabbits. They like to chew on electrical cables and so forth. So. Um, my, my cat <laughs> likes to do that too, so I, uh, I, I can understand. Uh, now, it occurs to me too that... If one is going to have a pet like this, and really any pet, but I'm thinking about some of these smaller animals, knowing the environment that you're in and whether or not you have any other larger pets around is probably important. That is to say, well, if you've got a, if you've got a dog that you know is liable to chase things, you probably don't want to introduce like a small animal like a rabbit into the house because that could potentially create conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's not even just, you know, having your, knowing that your dog or feel that your dog can um, attack the uh, attack the small mammal. I would just assume there is always the potential because, you know, dogs um, are canids. They are carnivores uh, or omnivores, if you want to call that. And same with, you know, cats or domestic cats. And so uh, a lot of times the, the response to prey items, which are the small mammals, is not something they have control over necessarily. It's the right stimulus. It turns on the, the hunting and killing response, and before you know it, um, your animal is dead, even if the animals have interacted well uh, over a period of time. So I've seen plenty of those, you know, where animals that have been living together very well, um, and then if you're not supervised one day, something bad happens. Um, so you do have to be careful of that. And another one of those is, what I call big bird on little bird syndrome is big parrots and little parrots. You know, they're not meant to be sitting together um, or in the same cage. And then you end up with trauma uh, when there's a little bit of an argument.
can rabbits be kept outdoors safely in the Florida environment? Um, if you keep them outdoors, um, the, the concerns are, you know, they escape, um, you know, making sure that they're able to get away from heat. Um, and reducing, uh, preventing contact with wildlife that includes um, wild rabbits, which can transmit some um, parasites. Um, and then also, you know, very rarely there were some rare cases of uh, rabies in rabbits, uh, in rabbits that were housed outdoors where uh, rabid raccoons had bit the ears that were sticking through the cage. So, But you do need to have the appropriate caging so they can't escape and can't be coming in contact. Uh, can rabbits get a, a rabies vaccine? I generally, um, even though it's not uh, registered for use uh, in rabbits, I generally recommend a rabies vaccine in rabbits that are housed outdoors. Um, the likelihood of them contracting rabies is low, but obviously it could be potentially catastrophic and then also potential transmission to humans as well. Um, and in Florida, um, the biggies are raccoons and uh, bats certainly can come in contact with outside uh, rabbits. Oh, wow. I, I saw uh, a week or so ago in my neighborhood a fox, hmm. and I thought, oh, he's, he's up to mischief. Um, <laughs> so let's pivot a little bit to an animal that I don't know if one would consider it a non-traditional pet because there are obviously millions and millions of them in this country. Uh, and I think that people do keep them, though, as animals, whether or not we would call them companion animals or for the wonderful food that they provide. But what about chickens? I mean, chickens, that's something we've seen as a, uh, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon in the last maybe 10 years. Um, there are a lot of people that have taken up keeping chickens in the backyard. And I, you know, I love uh, working with chickens. Our service sees the backyard poultry. Uh, we have an issue at the moment because uh, as veterinarians, we also have to protect the food uh, animal aspect of chicken um, housing. And so we don't see the, the poultry at the moment because of there has been an epidemic of uh, highly pathogenic avian influenza. Um, and so we also work with wild birds, which is the source of this. So at the moment, we don't see them. But the, uh, the chickens, the backyard chickens, for the most part, I would say are pets. Um, and so... They uh, make good pets under certain scenarios, but then you've, there's a, a lot of rules and regulations just making sure that if you are going to take up backyard poultry ownership, um, you need to understand um, what those are for your particular community. Uh, uh, right. Your neighbors may not uh, appreciate it um, in, in all neighborhoods. Well, the people I know who have had backyard poultry, backyard chickens, have managed to do so in a way that I kind of felt like was pretty simple. I mean, during the day, I feel like many of them were able to kind of let their chickens kind of roam around in the yard. And then at night, the chickens just kind of wanted to go back into their little, uh, you know, their little chicken coop and roost in there. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, it seemed like the feed and care of these animals was not especially burdensome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's you still need to do a little bit of investigation. Um, and one of the problems too that's come about is that uh, a number of the chicken breeds have been selected for high production whether it be meat or eggs and that uh, it can cause issues in animals that you want to keep basically as pets long term and so one of the big disease issues that we see in backyard poultry is those related 
or to reproduction and reproduction reproductive issues, um, either egg binding or dystocia or abnormal eggs or infections of the reproductive tract. Um, so if you're going to get backyard chickens, probably the best ones to get are from you know, a farm or somewhere outdoor facility where the chickens have been running around and those ones that have survived are probably the best stock to get, uh, which gets to the other issue is that chickens are prey items with, for a lot of animals. And I know a lot of people that start out with backyard poultry are very disturbed you know, when they come out the next morning and either a fox or a raccoon or yeah. something um, has taken out their flock. Yes, uh, that, that has also been something that has happened to people I know who have kept chickens. When we just talk about birds in general as pets and one of the ones that you mentioned and I mentioned earlier too, uh, the parakeet, which as a child I remember having one in the house and I was delighted by it. It seemed like a very friendly, uh, gregarious little bird that was almost happy to have uh, our attention and mm. it was playful and it wasn't very difficult to care for to the, as far as I recall. Um and it proved to be, I think, for me, a positive experience. Uh, are these are these popular pets all around the world? Yeah, I mean, budgerigars or parakeets are very, very popular pets. Um, in part, you know, one of the reasons why they've been popular pets is they can survive under really poor conditions and bad diets. Um, they're originally from Australia, uh, from the arid environments, and so they're really tough little animals. Um, same with cockatiels and zebra finches, um, they, that's probably why they are have remained in the pet trade um, for so long and have been domesticated effectively. Um, but they do make really good pets. And one of the things with um, the parakeets and the other parrots that I remember is that even though they do eat seeds, it's not a complete diet. Um, and now there are some good diets that are available and you can check out your local pet, uh, pet shop. Um, some palated diets and so forth should fill, should form a good part of the diet and they will make up for some of the deficiencies. But otherwise, they're good. Um, some of the other problems that you do have with budgerigars and cockatiels is that they're repetitive egg laying or breeding. Um, and part of that it does track back to the fact that they are from an arid environment. What budgerigars do in the wild is that they move to wherever the rains are and then they uh, know that the food is going to be readily available and they set up and start breeding very quickly and they'll keep breeding until the food runs out and they move to another area. Unfortunately, in captivity, you're providing food all the time um, and the right conditions for them to breed and so they sometimes it's hard to turn them off. Um, the other thing you can do, it, the, the best way of contracepting them is obviously separating males and females. That's one of the good things about budgerigars that you know, females have a brown sear, which is just over the top of the beak, and, and males have a blue sear. <clears throat> but uh, uh, one of the problems that I've, I've noticed, there are a lot of color variants of um, budgerigars that make that sometimes very, very difficult to, to, to correctly sex. Yeah, well, your, um, will your source where you obtain these birds be able to help you pick which ones are good? Going to be good companions together. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I'm not going to mention specifically, you know, pet chains and what have you. But they, um, there are usually pet shops are very uh, able to help you um, select uh, an appropriate um, 
bird and uh, particularly a budgerigar the appropriate sex, and then also to provide the uh, caging and all the other things that, you, that go along with having one of these. I do recall if there was any sort of difficulty, it was just making sure that the cage was always clean. The water especially, I felt like, got kind of dirty. Um, these birds, I mean, they need to, they do need some attention. It's not like you can just, like, set it and forget it. Yeah, they. You know, that's the thing I was talking about with, you know, being able to leave them is that they really do need to have clean water every day. So you need to be cleaning the, the water bowl out. Um, if you're feeding a lot of seed, you need to identify the fact that the, um, the husks are left inside the food and it's not that doesn't represent food, so you need to make sure that the animals or the birds have food um, all the time. They don't, because they have, they're very small, they have a high metabolic rate, um, it doesn't take very long to them for them to effectively starve to death. You know, with a couple of days without food, um, we'll end up with a dead budgerigar, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Now, just before we take the next break, I mean, in Australia, where these animals are native, mm-hmm. as you say, uh, you're talking about them being in kind of arid areas and Anybody who knows a little bit about the geography of Australia knows that there's quite a bit of of dry land there. Where do they find the water sources? Um, I mean, there are water holes, um, and then there's also they get a lot of their water from their food, um, just like some of the other uh, dry land or desert-adapted animals. Wonderful. All right, let's take one more break, and then when we come back, we've got a lot more to discuss with Dr. Daryl Hurd from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. I want to remind you that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, and we will be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. Glad to have you along on this Friday afternoon, and really happy to have Daryl Hurd from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine here with me. And we've been talking about what we might consider non-traditional pets, what some people might call exotic pets. And one uh, kind of or category of pet, let's say, Dr. Hurd, that I know is popular often with young people, are small lizards. Are these difficult to care for? Are they a good choice for a pet? They are. There is a number of species. Once again, it's 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 really varies between the different species, but there are a number of reptile species and lizard species that I would consider, I mean, domesticated in a way. There are many, you know, color morphs, and people have, have bred them in captivity for many, many generations. So for little lizard species, I mean, the classic is the uh, the bearded dragon is a very common pet, um, and it's a good pet uh, to, to keep in captivity. Um, and the, the only thing with some of these reptiles is that they have specific, what they call preferred optimum temperature ranges. Um, and some of these animals also do need uh, exposure to certain wavelengths of ultraviolet light. Uh, so you need an ultraviolet light lamp to convert uh, vitamin D to the appropriate vitamin D. They also need to be, I mean, we talked about the temperature, et cetera, and they also have specific food um, requirements. But the bearded dragon has been effectively domesticated for many generations. Uh, the uh, leopard gecko would be another one. Um, and then there's some others that uh, people don't think too much about, but I actually like are the crested geckos and gargoyle geckos. And the reason I like those species as you know, firstly, people have, have been, well, breeders have bred many generations of these uh, gecko species, but they can be kept at room temperature, don't need ultraviolet light, 
And then there's also, rather than insects, there they can be fed a uh, prepared diet um, that you can purchase at a pet store. So they're very easy keepers um, and very easy to, to breed and to play with. Yeah, I, I'm sure that many a parent, no doubt, has felt... Uh, a little bit skeptical of when when a child, uh, you know, a young child has said, I want this particular lizard as a pet and realizes that these lizards might need to eat insects. And then the next thing you know, you've just got like a jar of insects that you need to feed uh, to this animal. <laughs> so uh, that sounds great if there are options that don't need to consume Insects, when they eat insects, are they live insects or dead insects? Uh, many of them are live. Um, some, some of the lizards will take, you know, dead insects, but for the most part, they're live. So you end up going off to the, to the pet store to buy your live insects periodically, maybe once a week or every couple of weeks, uh, depending on the, yeah. the insects that you buy. Right, and then the next thing you know, you've got a bunch of chir- chirping crickets or something in the house. Um, so, but caring for them, I mean, when you talk about you know, the appropriate temperature and, and environment and so forth. Um, within their enclosure, do they need a, a mix of, you know, like rocks and foliage and so forth to be happy? Yeah, once again, it, it just depends on what the, where the ecosystem that these animals come out of. Um, but there's plenty of information out there. I mean, you can go to the web. I know that people you know, concern, you may get the wrong information. But if you are careful in, in looking at your information sources, there's information on how to care for all of these uh, animals and what their specific requirements and how to provide them. And there's really an industry around that actually now in terms of providing appropriate enclosures, providing the lighting, the heating, the food sources, etc. So it's a lot easier nowadays to take on some of these uh, reptile species. That said, I would be really careful. There are reptiles that I would not recommend. Obviously, the larger, dangerous ones that, firstly, are, you know, you can't get a permit for some of the monitor lizards and the tegus. Um, but also, I consider chameleons. They're very spectacular animals. But I would consider those a pet for a person that has a good experience keeping reptiles. They're not easy keepers, um, and there are not uncommonly you'll run into uh, husbandry and nutritional-related disease processes if you don't know what you're doing. Right. I mean, these animals, in many instances, are coming from places that are not at all like where we live. And so you've got to create an environment for them that mimics maybe their natural habitat, but also provide them the nutrition that mimics what they would probably be eating in the wild. And I, I imagine that in some circumstances, that's not just as easy as going to your local pet shop and finding that right on the shelf. That, I mean, that's true to some degree. But as I said, like nowadays, there's uh, reptile specialist uh, pet shops um, that should be able to provide you with the food, the necessary food requirements. Um, some of that may make you a little bit squeamish, though. You know, some of the carnivorous um, I think of some of the bigger carnivorous lizards, which you probably shouldn't have. Um, you might end up be feeding rodents. You know, uh, you don't need to be feeding live uh, animals in that instance. But if you're squeamish, that may be problematic. Um, and also, it can run into quite a bit of uh, money. There's guys, they're rather expensive um, if you're buying um, small rodents or specialized food items. <laughs> so I have a story to share. This is that when I was, uh, this was years ago, 20 years ago or so, and I was living the very like student kind of life in an apartment that I shared with a few other people. And 
I had a friend who needed a place to stay for a while, and with him came his Asian water monitor. And uh, I don't know the exact um, (laughs) scientific name for this animal. I do know that it was a very large lizard that was prone to escape, uh, (laughs) which is horrifying. But worse was that this animal uh, needed its, its enclosure cleaned on a schedule that, if it was not... It was the worst smell that I'd ever smelled. And and I thought to myself, this is just not an animal that one can keep in an apartment. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> difficult times, I got to say. I wouldn't do it again. Uh, so if you're, if you're considering a roommate, maybe check to make sure yeah, that yeah. he doesn't have an Asian water monitor. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I got, got back into, you know, when, when you're thinking about getting a pet, does it, how does it fit into your lifestyle and, you know, family, uh, lifestyle. So I also joke, you know, half joke, you know, about that, you know, if you're, if you're, you're afraid of your pet, then it's not a pet. Um, and so a, a water monitor, an Asian water monitor, I would be afraid to have um, as a pet. I know of one of my uh, faculty members who many years ago had a, a water monitor that grabbed onto his thumb or latched onto his thumb and almost degloved the whole thumb. So very, very dangerous yeah. animals. Yeah. I mean, this thing was essentially just like a small Komodo dragon that lived in the, <laughs> in the apartment. Well, I mean, when, when it comes to all of these animals, and we've got just a couple minutes left, uh, whether lizard or bird or rabbit. So, I mean, you know, different whole classes of animals here. What does one need to do to find a veterinarian that can be um, someone who you can turn to to care for these animals? Because you mentioned that not all veterinarians might not, uh, not all veterinarians will care for these animals. Yeah, I mean, some of it you can reach out to your local veterinary clinic um, and just ask. Uh, They're also on the web, um, if you you know if you do a search um, for exotic animal veterinarians, there are some listings uh, of veterinarians that will see you know non-domestic or non-traditional uh, veterinarians. There's also specialized speciality uh, groups such as the American Association of Avian Veterinarians that also list uh, veterinarians um, that are in your area that are willing to work, say, with birds. Um, there's also there's a veterinary association. Or there's an association of reptile and amphibian veterinarians. Uh, I don't know. I think they have a similar list as well. Um, there's a, there's basically a group in veterinary medicine for every um, group of animals. You've obviously talked with Dr. Walsh previously with the aquatic animal um, group as well. So right now, uh, finally, last before we go, if it should come to pass that you are no longer able to care for one of these animals, well, I think that the last thing one will want to do is just let it go. What do, what do you do? Well, unfortunately, nowadays that with certain, certain groups of animals, it is very difficult to find a home, and that's one of the big considerations if you're doing the, the, really the ethical thing of actually owning these animals is thinking about what you're going to do at the end of um, your life or when you're not able to keep them. A good example of that is um, some of the uh, the bird species or parrot species, which are very long lived, such as the cockatoos, and some of the many of them actually don't make good pets uh, as well. And there are there are rescue groups, you know, that rescue these animals. However, these people are overloaded because there's just so many animals out there. So I think probably the first step is don't get a pet. 
um, that you not, are not going to be able to pass on to someone who will take responsibility because there isn't in general uh, groups that will take these animals. The zoos certainly do not um, take um, outside birds or birds from, from lay people as a, as a regular uh, consideration. So that's not a way of offloading your pet and certainly don't release it. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Dr. Daryl Hurd, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us today. I always enjoy speaking with you and I appreciate your being here. My pleasure, Dana. That's and I want great. to say thank you to Sarah Carey for her help with the program. And thank you all for tuning in today to Animal Airwaves Live.